Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. I'm your host, Deborah Beaumont. I'm glad that you're joining me today. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to a young woman. I have found her blogging to be so interesting and so helpful because, for one thing, it's a very creative and expressive way to deal with some of the emotional stuff that comes up. But she really brings to light some very important issues that I think we all need to know about. All too often, if we're struggling with anxiety, depression, or even post-traumatic stress, we're you know, told to take a pill, take a prescription, you know, maybe see a therapist. But that's not really the answer in many cases. And it's not everything that's going to help us deal with these complex feelings that come up, not only at diagnosis, but through treatment and sometimes afterwards. And today's guest really talks about that. I'd like to take a minute to introduce Megan Molnar, is a social worker in Waco, Texas. She lives there with her husband, Nick, and her dog, Wedge, who she just told me is quite a large dog. I think he's 110 pounds, so he really is a Wedge. Uh, Megan previously worked with oncology patients in the hospital setting before she herself was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that happened just three weeks before her wedding. So you can imagine um, what a shock that was in her life. She had an aggressive form of breast cancer. And at the age of 26, she had to deal with this with everything else that was going on in her life. That's one of the things that I think she talks about very eloquently, what it was like to be diagnosed at such a young age, because all too often, the attitude is that breast cancer is something that affects women that are older, and it's actually increasingly affecting younger and younger women. Megan has a passion for education and advocacy around that, and actually teaching young women, teaching young men about warning signs, detection, things that we need to do. And she really highlights that in her blog very nicely. She uses humor and vulnerability to spread her message. Her blog is netflixandchemo.com. I am thrilled that she is here to talk with us today. Thank you for joining us, Megan. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Well, you know, just in your intro that uh, we went through, I think you've um, already addressed some of the two or three major myths that I talk to people about. And one of those myths, I think, that really trips people up is that they think that breast cancer just affects older women in menopause. And I have experienced and found that younger and younger women, unfortunately, are being diagnosed, um, unfortunately, even as young as you in your 20s. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, of course. As I have found just in different support groups, um, online Facebook groups, the number of young women, di young women diagnosed with breast cancer is just is growing astronomically. Um, I myself was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. It is negative for any kind of uh, hormone receptors. Um, and this type, it's a little more rare, but it's showing up in younger women more and more. Um, now, I have no breast cancer history in my family. I do not carry the BRCA gene. So it really came out of nowhere. It's just been very interesting kind of navigating how this works. Like you said, a lot of women who are diagnosed are either going through menopause or postmenopausal. I was 26, you know, chemo put me into menopause. And then um, fortunately, I came out of it after treatment. But a lot of unexpected things, a lot of things regarding fertility that aren't talked about um, right. with doctors. And so there's a lot of area for advocacy and education for patients as well as 
doctors who were going to start seeing younger and younger women. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, my myself personally, when I went through my diagnosis and treatment, I was part of a, a community in the Bay Area that does um, a fundraiser once a year. And it's a really amazing organization. I was really surprised. There were, I believe, between 35 and 40 models. It was a fashion show. At least a third were women in their early 40s. Many of them were in their 30s. And one woman was 28. And so this myth that breast cancer is just something that you deal with when you get old really needs to be called out and put into the light because I think it really affects whether women are getting proper assessment, proper screening, and if they're even thinking about it. Fortunately, even some of the medical stuff like recommendations about how often or when you should start mammograms, you know, they, they're pushing the age back and not even starting the screening until older and older. So I think this is a really important thing for women to know that you need to be really aware of the fact that it's affecting younger and younger women. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, that awareness, that it can happen. And then there's not a lot of education. I mean, I have to say, I, you know, at 26, had never had somebody sit down and show me or tell me how to do a self uh, exam, because it's not something that your gynecologist is talking to you about yet when you're in your early 20s. And so, you know, right now, tomorrow morning, I'm going to Baylor University. Um, and I like to talk to young women, you know, that college age is perfect. And just let them know it can happen to you if you don't have a family history, if you don't have a gene. I mean, those things should always, you know, kind of give you red flags and up your awareness even more. But it can happen to anyone. And so it's important knowing how to perform self-exams. And then another really important part of that is being an advocate for yourself. I know it can be scary, you know, speaking with doctors. They kind of have the power in that room. But kind of taking back some of that power and knowing that you are the expert of your own body I mean, I know when I felt something, I felt like I was kind of blown off by the first doctor. So they sent me to get an ultrasound the next week. Um, and when I went in, the, the tech was very sweet, but she kept telling me, no, you don't have a history and this is fine. You're too young. It's definitely not cancer. It's definitely not cancer. And then before I left, she gave me a hug and said, don't lose any sleep over this. And then I found out that next week that it was cancer. And so while I know she was trying to be kind and everything, I mean, you really have to advocate for yourself and know that it can happen to you. Um, and that if doctors aren't used to seeing that, or technicians aren't used to seeing that, they're just not going to be, I think, usually as vigilant as they would with, with an older woman. Right. And I believe that there are so many myths about um, breast cancer, breast cancer screening. That, um, and unfortunately, doctors are trained in a way that they're kind of perpetuating the myth. One of our episodes that I did earlier was with an expert, a woman who unfortunately found out that she had advanced stage breast cancer after she had been religious about her screenings for many years, but had never been told she has dense breast. And breast density is not only a, a breast cancer risk, but it's also a reason that a mammogram has a very strong likelihood of not even picking up the breast cancer. But she didn't know that, so she didn't know to ask the question, and she was a, a diagnosed at a later stage. So there are just so many myths that we need to be talking about, and unfortunately, we end up talking about them when we've gone through it ourselves and we've kind of fallen oh, through yeah. the cracks. Mm -hmm. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I really, you know, this is for another time, but, you know, I know that they're trying to push back mammograms and everything. And, and I know that when I had my ultrasound, the tumor was right there, big as can be. And then they did an ultra, uh, a mammogram on me and you could 
barely make it out. If you weren't looking for it, you couldn't see it. And so I really wish there was more um, advocacy around getting breast ultrasounds becoming the norm for people who are at higher risk. Um, I just feel like they, they have more accuracy. Um, and I know that if I had just gotten a mammogram and not an ultrasound, I don't know that they would have found it. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, as I said, there are, you know, I want to change the language, actually. I want the language. And, and this, is, this is a real problem with doctors. They'll say, have you had your yearly mammogram? We need mm-hmm. to even change the language to your yearly breast exam. You know, your your breast exam is going to include other modalities if a mammogram is not the ideal screening test for you. It's, it, you know, that includes breast self-exam. It includes ultrasound, um, even 3D mammograms. But we need to really change the language and the thinking so we're thinking about overall breast health and not just trying to diagnose a tumor or a disease because none of the screening methods that we have is that reliable to do that on a consistent basis so that when you leave that exam room, you can have that piece of mind of knowing, wow, I'm 100% clear here. Nothing we have out there in the medical or the alternative world answers that question. And we need to know that because like you said, it's our own knowledge and our own ability to know our bodies that's going to make the difference. I, like you, I actually felt a lump in my breast. I was at uh, Disneyland, as a matter of fact, the happiest place on earth on a Saturday night, (laughs) and I felt the lump. And and I knew instantly, and yet when I went in on Monday to see my doctor, she said, oh, I don't feel anything. I think you just have, you know, really cystic breasts. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And it was like, no, I'm worried about it, and you need to do something. And then, of course, you know, had the mammogram and the ultrasound. But the fact is, is that just because a doctor tells you, don't worry about this, that, that's not the end of the story. And, and we all need to be empowered to say, no, I need to have this examined more thoroughly because a lot of it is missed. Oh, I completely. And it's so funny you said that you had a feeling because, you know, it sounds crazy, but the moment I felt it, I knew. And, right. you know, even even when the woman was telling me, oh, you're too young. Oh, it's nothing. And even though I didn't have a history, I just kept it didn't make me feel better when she was saying that because I just had this pit in my stomach and I knew what it was. Um, and it's just crazy how we kind of, I mean, we, re- we truly are the, the only experts of our own bodies. Um, and I knew something was wrong. I knew it. Also, certain leading cancer organizations are actually telling women to not do self-breast exam because it's not reliable and consistent and blah, 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 blah. So that's not even being encouraged. I, I Don't quote me on this, but I, I think I, I heard an interview where somebody said they had gone through the Komen Foundation and they're not even recommending doing breast self-exam routinely on yourself. And to me, that's crazy. I mean, that's, that's the first oh place that it should start, you know, and, that, and more often, yeah. that's where we're going to catch it before you ever go get um, any kind of testing done. Oh, exactly. And I cannot imagine, and I just, I hope that there is not a doctor out there that would say, or I hope there's a doctor that would say, I would rather see 20 patients who felt something and it turned out to be nothing than one patient who didn't feel themselves ever and this lump continued to grow and continued to spread. I mean, it, it, that's just so crazy to me because, you know, that was that self-exam that I performed, I was laying in bed. I was, I don't know what I was doing. It was the first self-exam I had ever done. I mean, I think it was one of those, wow. I had a weird feeling. The first right. exam I'd ever done. And I, I wasn't even doing it right. Luckily, mine was very large. It was towards the top of my chest, um, almost on my flat area. And so I thought, you know, it was attached to my chest wall, not actually in my breast. And so 
you know, I luckily was able to feel it very and make out the edges um, very, very clearly. If it had been deeper or in a different place and harder to get to, I don't know that I would have ever um, that I would have ever felt it. Um, and then I'm not sure if you're familiar with it's a it's a I believe it's an organization now. Know your lemons. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love them. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's absolutely fabulous too. I think that that poster. So for those that don't know, yeah, it's a it's a bunch of lemons, and each one has a different kind of symptom of breast cancer. There's the dimpling, the enlarged, the redness, the lump. Kind of that's one of the more obvious ones to feel. But these symptoms that needs to be in every. OBGYN office, every PCP office, I just don't, it blows my mind that we are not trying to make every single woman aware of these signs. Yeah. So um, just as a little side note, this is called knowyourlemons.com. And it's a, um, they have all sorts of educational material. But the thing that they really bring to light is that it's not just one symptom. As a matter of fact, um, the most common form of breast cancer is um, uh, ductal carcinoma, but there is there are other forms of breast cancer. One of them is called inflammatory breast cancer that is actually defined by a diffuse swelling. And you, you might see color changes or size changes or temperature changes, but it's, it's more um, diffuse and in the tissue so you may not feel a lump, but it's it's still an aggressive form of breast cancer. So yeah, that's a really great resource, and I'll I'll list that in our show notes because that's a really great resource for women, and it's and it's a a nice not fun way, but less threatening way to to think about it and to look at it, you know, than um oh, than looking mm-hmm. at ultrasound studies and whatever. But that's a really great resource. I was introduced to you by reading one of the writings that I think was in your blog. And I know that you really focus on the emotional coping uh, that women go through, particularly after treatment is over. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because I, like you, feel that's such an under-addressed issue that we all have to think about and be aware of, how to deal emotionally with the journey and that period of what happens once you ring the chemo bell or chemo's over. I think women think, oh, my journey's over. And in some ways, it's just beginning. That's Definitely, definitely. So um, I believe there's a big misconception that when you are diagnosed with cancer, that that is when it all hits you. And that is when there is a rush of emotion. And I will say that, um, at least in my experience and a lot of those that I've spoken to about this, um, the original getting diagnosed is very traumatic. But after diagnosis, I mean, I was diagnosed about three weeks before the wedding. And before the wedding, I had already had one chemo treatment and I had a plan for surgery and I'd met with the surgeon. That, wow. And that surgery wasn't going to be until about eight or nine months later. I mean, once I was diagnosed, we hit the ground running. And I, I mean, I was meeting with people every single day for the first week and a half to start that chemo. Um, and so there's just so much, it's such a whirlwind that it really, you know, it was sad and it was scary, but I almost didn't have time to process all of it. Right. Um, now I, I did have a couple professionals tell me, yeah, you know, you should really seek counseling, seek support, uh, particularly for young women. I wasn't really able to find a lot of support in my area. I had treatment in a larger city in Austin, but I live about an hour and a half away in Waco. And there wasn't a lot here for particularly for younger women. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of questions. I was doing a lot of research on my own. And I found that through blogging, I was really able to process what I needed to process at that time. Um, now, when things got really hard for me, and when they get hard for a lot of women, is when the dust kind of settles. 
and everything has slowed down and you're told, okay, you're done with treatment, you're done with surgery, go back to living a normal life. Right. Um, Whatever that is. You know, exactly, exactly. You know, and everyone, it's a new normal. It's a new normal. Well, it's different and it's hard. It is very hard. Um, And after that, women aren't told you should seek help after, after all this has happened. You know, I kept seeing women in these groups on Facebook saying things like, you know, I'm done with treatment, but there are days I can't get out of bed. I am not sleeping. I have so much you know, I have so much anxiety. I don't know what this is. And a lot of people, you know, are are responding and saying, Oh, we all have bad days, or there's this or this, that. And there's not enough people saying now is when you need to speak with someone if it's affecting your daily life, and you're not getting out of bed, and you're calling in sick, which are a lot of the things that I started to do. It's time to get help. And so I noticed that I was lacking a feeling of purpose. I thought, okay, I did all of this. Now what? What is left for me? What is you know, this is very, it's difficult. I don't know where to go from here. Um, so there was times I kind of started um, pulling myself up in the house. Um, I was very irritable. Um, you're at that very awkward stage where your hair is just starting to grow back and it's, it's hard to manage. And what does this look like? Do I go to work like this? And it got to the point where I was just having just really terrible thoughts. And it's always hard to say out loud, but there would be times where it would be like, um, you know, I almost wish that I hadn't survived. And it it sounds so callous, especially to people who have not gone through it, especially to your loved ones who say, how could you say that? You know, but thinking that number one, thinking that is, is okay if we're not, you know, acting upon it. But that's when we know, okay, I need to seek some help. My husband is also um, has his master's in social work, which I'm very fortunate to have had someone like that next to me this whole time. But he really urged me, you know, I think it's time that you talk to somebody. And after my, you know, however many days in bed, I I did seek professional help. I walked into that office and, and we spoke and it did not take her very long to say, you have PTSD. And immediately when she said that, it all fell into place and it all clicked. Because when we think of PTSD as a majority, we are thinking people who have gone into battle, people who have been, you know, um, shipped off to war, people who have experienced or been witnesses to violent acts. And really, we have been witnesses to that. We have gone to war in a sense. And so um, you're really just, facing the repercussions of everything that you've gone through. And, and then it explained my lack of sleep. It explained the depression, the anxiety. I mean, my husband's little things that don't really make sense. Before my husband would walk into a room, he would kind of have to announce himself because I became so jumpy. Right. Everything scared me. I was on edge constantly. And that is not a way to live when you're constantly just so anxious. And so, yeah, that's when I was diagnosed. And that's when things really having giving it a name was helpful. Um, and having a plan was helpful. And that's when things started to change for me. I too went through this. And I've done a, I did one of my prior episodes on post traumatic stress, because I do really think we have to rethink this. And a couple things I wanted to highlight you, you mentioned, and, and I absolutely agree that people associate PTSD with going into battle. But think about the language that we and society use when someone's going through breast cancer. 
oh, she's a breast cancer warrior. Oh, you know, she's fighting um, cancer. You know, she's fighting the good fight, the battle. We have gone through a personal battle. Unfortunately, it's not one that's understood very well, usually by people who haven't been there. And one of the other things that really occurred to me when you were talking is that not only do you as the patient going through this, I hate that client word, but client (laughs) patient going through this, have an expectation that it's going to be over when treatment is done. But people around you do. It is not infrequent that I hear from my clients. Well, you know, my husband said, you know, I saw you through this and, you know, and now just get over it and get back to yourself. And that not only is not helpful, it is literally impossible. If you are going through post-traumatic stress, depression, and anxiety, we live in a society that doesn't have a lot of understanding for psychological um, issues and for people who are struggling with depression and anxiety. But if you're going through that, you literally cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just be different because somebody tells you to be different. And yet there's that expectation from, from friends and family that puts more guilt and more pressure on you and and often just leaves you feeling more isolated and alone and and in that spiral of anxiety and depression. Oh, exactly. I I completely agree with all that. And to touch once more just on the, you know, the the battle, you know, language that's used, you know, I think a lot of people, they want to compare, they want to say, okay, well, you weren't being shot at or, or, you know, and the thing is, it's all hard. It's all difficult. And it's all, it can all be PTSD. We're not saying that one thing is worse than the other because it's all terrible. And I think it's when people want to try to compare in a way of, well, who, who has it worse kind of thing. You know, we, that's not a competition. Um, but people get very defensive about that, about that PTSD language. Um, but it's really other people around you. And like, you, you know, like you said, other people urging you to, to get better faster or to be okay or to get over it. Um, you know, this is, This is not just a mental thing. This is an emotional thing. This is a physical thing. Your body is still bouncing back. For me as a functional medicine practitioner, the first thing that, you know, I really want to look at is, I mean, just you don't have to have a science degree to really give credit to the tremendous onslaught that your body has gone through by all these treatments. So in addition to all this, you're dealing with hormonal imbalances, you're dealing with chemical changes, you're dealing with being on drugs, you know, it's very common to have to take drugs that radically put you into menopause, you know, and cause extreme hormonal shifts. So it's not even a matter of, of, of a psychological experience. Many times it's a physical one as well. So much is focused on what is the next surgery or what is the next chemo drug that I just think there's not enough attention paid to what happens, with, like you said, when the dust settles and you're kind of like left in this different place than where you started and you didn't plan on being. I, exactly. And and, and I know for, for younger women as well, a lot of that, there's a lot of grief. So I think it's also to note um, that for younger women who are still of childbearing age, especially for the ones who haven't had children yet, um, a lot of the time they're losing, especially if they're BRCA positive and they need to go ahead and have a radical hysterectomy, um, that's taking away their ability to carry a child. Um, but you also, you know, I personally don't have children and I had to grieve the fact that I'll never be able to breastfeed my child. Um, And for other people, it's the fact that they will go into menopause um, and they don't come out of it like some other people do. Um, Or the fact that you might have mental fog forever or the fact that your body is going to be different. Every time you pass a mirror, you're going to look different, whether it's your hair 
or your scars or your shape. You know, and so I think that along with the PTSD, there's also a lot of grieving and everyone says, you know, grieving takes time. Time is what's going to heal these things. So when you have people saying, okay, come on, get over it. We've already moved on. Why haven't you caught up? You know, I think people forget about, so there's so much loss in cancer. Right, right. And, you know, you brought up something that, that uh, for me personally was just kind of eye opening, but you mentioned the loss of a sense of purpose. And boy, that just really brought me back personally. And and I think I've told this story before, but I had breast cancer, but but 10 years prior to that, I had cervical cancer. And I ended up having a radical hysterectomy. And I've told the story of complications. But the biggest thing that went on for me for several years is um, I was 39 at the time and uh, went through a radical hysterectomy. And I was single, had not had children. But I had never stopped and taken time out of my career to realize that I always expected to have children. And then all of a sudden, that was taken from me. And I went through a period of several years that it wasn't always depression, but it was that just, it just felt like a hole. It just felt like something was missing, that sense of purpose, you know, and and I realized that, you know, that's, that had been my story, you know, my whole life, my, you know, was always that we were going to have children and, and, and I didn't. And, and that loss of purpose was really the most difficult thing to deal with. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because this is in so many ways a life changing experience. It's not just the diagnosis, but, you know, it changes how you relate to your family. It may change your career. In my case, it took me out of the main thrust of my career and became something completely different that I didn't anticipate. And I didn't want that. I, I didn't ask for that. And I lost a lot of time um, trying to make sense of that. And then it's also really hard to explain to people, you know, like I was at the, I was a transport nurse. So I was, um, you know, at a good point in my career. And I look at friends now who didn't have years of their lives just taken out by cancer, who are at a, at a point in their life that I thought I would be at, and I'm not. And that's a whole adjustment process to kind of reorder who you are, who you are in relation to your career, your family, your body. You know, that that's a huge process that is not going to happen in a short period of time. I'm so glad that you were really highlighted that because that really personally brought me back to something that I sometimes forget about. And it's actually very. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yes. I th- Yeah. I think that purpose, whether it be, yeah, exactly like you stated, a career, a lot of people change careers after a diagnosis like cancer, whether it's a career, relationships, friendship, um, you know, having children, whether or not you're going to have children, um, a lot of that, a lot of that changes. And it's something you don't anticipate. I loved how you said it's not something that you asked for, but this is something that was kind of dropped in your lap. Um, and then it's also somehow your responsibility to navigate how to get out of that. And, you know, I mean, just completely unfair. Right, right. That's it. It's unfair. And, you know, and anybody in this place has a right to just, you know, it's not wallowing or self-pity. It's it's unfair. And you have a right to experience that. It's just not fair. You know, I, I look at many women that I worked with and I look at where their lives are and they're having kids and, you know, and I'm happy for them. It's not that I'm, I begrudge them that, but it, it never comes without that bittersweet experience that that wasn't a choice that was given to me. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that in terms of the whole healing process, you don't always have to 
be cheerful or make this okay for people or make people understand it. You, it, you can't. You know, sometimes you can barely understand it yourself. I think that it's just honoring the right that you have the right to sometimes just feel like this was unfair and I didn't deserve this. And, we're, and we don't live in a world that allows you to do that because that's, that's feeling sorry for yourself or that's pitying yourself. That's just the reality. Mm-hmm. And oh, completely. I really want to talk about, you said that uh, blogging became an outlet for you, which I think is, is wonderful because one of the things that I think can be very healing is to find creative outlets. For me, it's this podcast, you know, and for you, it's blogging. And for other women, it may be changing careers. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I remember... I, years ago, a friend of mine who went through it, she's like, oh, I'm so grateful that I got cancer. And I was like, you know what? You're never going to hear those words from my lips. It's oh, like, no. I, I would be really grateful if I got to live the life that I thought I was going to have and that I had worked hard to have. But I understand that was her way of, of understanding the experience. But it also gave, you know, she, she became very active in the community, started doing a lot of breast cancer education. So that became an outlet for her, you know, and, and, and so I understand her saying that she was grateful, but I was like, you know, I could have managed to get there without, you know, getting a devastating illness too, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, but I say that because I just want to give people permission to have whatever emotional experience they're having. And like you said, I think people think that going through treatment is, is the, the brunt of it. And in many ways, I find that's a period of numbness and overwhelm. You know, you have to, you're thrown this diagnosis, you have to make these major life altering decisions with very limited and usually insufficient information. There's a lot of fear. A lot of people just want to put their head in the sand and not think about it and not deal with it. And yet you're not given that luxury. You have to think about it. You have to deal with it. So I think there's a period of numbness and grief that really blocks dealing with some of the other stuff that we've been talking about. And like you said, I think when things get quiet and you're not going to doctor's appointments every day and and you've your mind is not oriented towards what the next treatment is or the next side effect, that that's when a lot of that can sometimes catch up with you. And, and then people can start, women can start feeling like, what's wrong with me? I should be happy because I, I got through this. And, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the feeling that comes initially. Exactly. Exactly. And I find that you'll always, um, you'll always have people saying things similar to what she said, oh, I'm grateful I got cancer. Well, you'll have people as the the person with cancer from the outside saying like, oh, you got this so that you would make the world a better place. Or the reason that you got cancer is so that you can be more appreciative of life. And, and And women need to understand that when people say those things to you, you do not have you are not obligated to entertain those thoughts and think, maybe that is why I got cancer. No, those are those people putting that on you so that they can try to wrap their head around why you got cancer. You know, I mean, when people say, oh, it, you know, you, you, uh, you got it so that your purpose is to educate others. Well, I would have liked to have chosen that to be my new role. Not have exactly. it upon me, no matter, no matter if I like it or not, it, it would have been really nice to have a say, you know, in where my life was going. But I do feel like, yeah, a lot of people try to make sense of other people in their lives have a de- having a devastating illness by kind of creating their own narrative. And it's not our responsibility to make others feel okay. Um, and it's not our responsibility 
to adjust our thinking to what we think th- they think, you know, and because right. sometimes it can get confusing. You have so many people telling you, oh, this is it, or this is it, or, you know, oh, it, it can just get so, the waters can get so muddied and, and really um, you're responsible for your own thinking and of why you got cancer. You know, everyone feels differently about that, but it can just become very overwhelming. I call it the tyranny of happiness. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I do have a very sarcastic sense of humor, but it's actually true. And a lot of times, and, and I think this is really worth fleshing out a little bit. Um, one of the things that I think is um, shocking and difficult for a, a great many women is to find out who their friends are. You know, all of a sudden you go through this and all of a sudden people can just I, be insensitive, rude, say the stupidest things, say the, say the most hurtful things, you know, and, and since I know a lot of people in the whole health space, I would add on to all those things that you mentioned um, about uh, uh, feeling happy, adding on, well, you caused this because you didn't eat the right thing or you didn't exercise or you did X, Y, or Z. The fact is, is that cancer just sucks and people get cancer, you know, and, and really there's no reasoning that needs to go beyond that. And like, I I like what you said, you don't have to make those people feel good. And a lot of times they're saying those things to deal with their own inability to show up at the plate and be a decent human being, you know, or to Mm -hmm. be a good friend. And and the fact is, is I had a friend, um, she comes from another culture. She, she's a Native American. And, and years ago, we were talking about this. She's, she's got a degree in sociology. And, and, and she said, you white girls, you know, she said, you white people, um, <laughs> you think about things differently than us. She said, you, you people have to process everything. You go to a psychologist for everything. You know, you have to process and talk about everything. She said, we view things a little bit differently in our culture. And she said, the first thing we look at, if we were talking about relationships and people not showing up. She said, sometimes you just have to acknowledge that bad behavior is just bad behavior. And it's not acceptable. And there's no amount of processing or going to see a therapist in the world that's going to change that. Sometimes people just act badly and you just, you you can love them, you can not love them, but you just let them be responsible for their own behavior. And I just, I just, that has always come back to me years and years later, you know, particularly. Oh, I love that. You know, when we're feeling like we have to take care of other people, I think one of the issues with breast cancer is that it predominantly affects women. You know, men do get it. I do want people to know men do get breast cancer, but it's predominantly women and women are caretakers. And I think sometimes when a a breast cancer diagnosis comes along, it literally may be the first time in a woman's life that she has to step back and realize that she can't take care of everyone else before she takes care of herself. You know, physically, she may not be able to take care of everyone else, but women are so accustomed to being in the role of a caretaker and taking care of friends, family, church, community first, that they may have never had the experience of stepping back and saying, no, I can't do that. You know, no, I need to take care of myself. That's not being selfish. But women usually are not trained to do that until they get pushed to the wall sometimes and their backs to the wall and they have to do that. Oh, I completely agree. It's a very... um it's an odd position to be put in, especially if you, yes, if you are a mother, if you're used to kind of helping with the household and, and especially, I know so many women um, found their lumps when they were breastfeeding, they were told that um, it was an issue with their breastfeeding and then it turned out being cancer. And then yes, having a new baby or um, just in general, being used to 
caring for anybody else in your family or caring for yourself, right. you know, and needing somebody else's help. And it's usually not just one person. It takes a village to care for someone with cancer, you know, including our doctors and our caretakers. Um, it's a lot. And to step back and to allow that to happen. Um, in the blog, I talked a lot about guilt. I had so much guilt and, and felt so responsible. And I mean, I know that I did not cause my cancer. I know that for a fact, well, as much as I think I do. And, and I know that I didn't do it on purpose. And that's what really matters is I did not bring this upon myself on purpose, but I felt that I was such a burden to others, um, which I know that I wasn't, you know, after having many conversations and discussions, but it's hard to not feel that being put in such an unnatural position for yourself that, um, that you're not kind of getting in the way by right. being sick. Right. Right. Yeah, I I think that's a very real thing. I I, I think about um, Elizabeth Edwards. Um, she she was in the middle of a presidential campaign, and she knew she had a lump for months and months and months, and it just never took the time to go and have it looked at because she was in such a high profile, busy life. And it doesn't have to be high, high profile political life. It could be that you have kids that you're just trying to get your kids through school, and you're trying to run a household and work and, you know, be part of your church and community. Women take on so much caretaking that that's really under um, acknowledged in terms of what do you do when you need to stop and say, I need some help too. And I think one of the things is that I work with a lot of my clients on is how to ask for help. It doesn't have to be um, that someone has to come over and process you know, your cancer diagnosis with you. It can be something like picking up your kids from school. It's it's not just a casserole experience of dropping something off, but it can be really asking people for very legitimate forms of help so that all of that burden doesn't fall on you. And I, I do think it's incredibly difficult to do that without a sense of guilt. Definitely, definitely. So um, I, I really want to make sure that we get time to talk about your blog because I, I was reading some of your blog and it was just really great. But, but um, talk to me about your blog and where that came from. And, and it sounds like it, it started as a, as a personal healing tool and it sounds like it's become something much bigger. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I've, I've always loved to write. And I wanted a way, it was just supposed to start out as a very casual uh, way for me to keep friends and family updated. Um, I didn't want to have to um, get on Facebook and and write separate posts every time I had an update because I thought it would get buried or thought, well, there's probably people who aren't really interested in this. And so I wanted to make kind of a separate place to just talk about this. And what it turned into was almost a diary where I just found myself being pretty vulnerable, but also I was able to laugh about things. Um, And I know everyone deals with with trauma and with pain different ways, but I really discovered that humor um, is something that I used quite a bit to make myself feel better. It was being able to laugh about things didn't make them any less serious and any less scary, but it was easier to talk about them. You know, and a lot of people say, well, um, you got to laugh so you don't cry. And, and it was kind of something like that in a sense. 
Um, my husband would pop on from time to time and write blogs if I wasn't feeling well, um, or if I, I couldn't write for whatever reason that week. Um, and so it's something that we kind of got to, to do together, which was, um, very healing. Um, but I found that more people started reading it than I expected. It was getting shared quite a bit. And I kind of went back and forth from more personal talking about my own experiences to other ones would be more generic or more general to the population of what not to say to someone with cancer and stuff like that. Now, towards the end of the road for me, as far as treatment, which I think my last blog post, one of the last ones, it was when I finally had the surgery, there was a long hiatus there. And that's when um, I didn't know it at the time, but the PTSD had started to kind of kick in and rev up because I found that I, I couldn't write. And it was almost like that loss of purpose thing. I thought, well, if I'm not writing about cancer, what am I writing about? Um, and I have found that since then, I've kind of taken more a role of educator and, um, and advocacy. And so I'm not writing as the person with cancer or as the patient, but I'm able to kind of write about it from the other side, which has right. been really healing. And so, um, like you said earlier, having a creative outlet is so important. And I just found that once this started, um, it just kind of sparked a lot of opportunities and opened up some doors that have been just so great in terms of me having the, the platform to speak out and to educate, which has been extremely rewarding. I really wanted to um, touch on something that you said there, which I, um, I have found in my own personal journey and the journey for me and my husband, which is you saying that your husband became part of that. And I really think that, that, uh, doing something like that where you do a project together can be incredibly healing. You know, men, we know men and women express emotions differently. And, you know, when I was going through treatment, I would, I would stop and I'd ask my husband, I mean, I could see the stress and the worry and see what was happening. And I'd ask him, you know, how are you doing? And he'd say, oh, it's not about me. It's about you. And he did everything he could to support me. And I kept saying, no, it's about us. But men don't tend to think that way. They're not as, you know, emotionally um, oriented as women sometimes. And that became, you know, that became, at one point, actually became an issue that we had to address because the anxiety and the fear and the frustration all built up to like a breaking point. But I think one of the ways that um, doing a, a project like you talked about is as a way to recreate intimacy. And that's one mm -hmm. of the things that you lose. I mean, let's face it, you're going through a disfiguring experience, you're going through surgery, you're going through pain. I don't know anybody that it hasn't affected their sex life, usually in not a very positive way, and really struggling with body image and sexuality and intimacy. And yet you're with somebody who loves you and cares about you, but feels helpless to know what to do to help you sometimes going through PTSD, going through this anxiety, going through the depression. That can be really difficult for your loved ones to see and not know how to help you. And so I love the fact that you both found something that you could both be part of. And I think that that can create a way of communicating and rebuilding connection with each other. Yes, yes. I mean, it was very, very helpful. Um, similar to what you said, my husband as well tends to be, he's more introverted, um, not a big feelings guy, at least not expressing them with his words. And something that meant the world to me that he did was while I was actually under for my um, double mastectomy and reconstruction, it was about, I think, a 12 or 14 hour surgery. He wrote me a letter and he published it on the blog. Wow. Um, and it was 
it was the first time that he had put a lot of those things into words. Um, I mean, and, and like you said, ours as well kind of came to a head because I remember one particularly uh, menopause-fueled breakdown, I remember asking him, do you even care? I can't even tell if you care. And of course I knew that he cared. <laughs> of course I knew that. But he didn't, he didn't show his emotions the way that I did. I would cry at the drop of a hat. And he was there as kind of this pillar to hold me together. Um, and, and so he, um, he wrote Which, that. Let me just he, intersperse. For men, is a mm-hmm. huge part of their identity. That is a huge part of how they feel like they're helping you, is to be that pillar of strength. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I remember, I remember seeing him. He cried one time that I can remember. It was, I got the call really quick. I got the call when I was up at a conference in Dallas for work by myself. He drove up. We drove back to Waco. That night we were laughing about it. And it was just kind of this, I cannot believe I have cancer. This is crazy. This is nuts. And we're kind of joking. And the next morning I accidentally woke him up because I was crying so hard. I was shaking the bed and he rolled over. And he held me and, and he cried and I cried and he said to me, this isn't funny anymore. Mm. And that's when it really, that's when it really hit us. And then the second time that he cried was the day I found out that I had no evidence of disease and Mm. I got some cupcakes and I brought them home on our lunch break because we left, we lived so close to work, brought them home on our lunch break and he opened the box and I had written, guess what? We're cancer free. And he turned around and he grabbed me and we both just bawled in the middle of the kitchen. Mm. And, and so those two times I think are just so symbolic of the fact that he cared the whole time, but really at the beginning it hit him. And at the end it was closure for him. And that didn't mean that just because in you know, right there in the middle, he wasn't feeling anything. He was just holding it all together for me, you know, which, Mm -hmm. which might even be harder having to hold your breath and keep your composure rather than really just kind of let it all out, you know? And, And so I think sometimes we misinterpret someone not showing emotion as being cold when really, I mean, they can be being brave and strong and caring because he probably knew as soon as I saw him break, I was going to break. Right. You know, right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, for men, showing up and being that pillar of strength is a huge part of how they're kind of um, trained and, and I'm, I'm not sure I get the word right, but culturalized. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's what men are taught to be. And, and, you know, some of that may be changing, but it's still, you know, they love you. And, and, and that is one way of taking care of you. And I used to sit there and think, you know, like when I'd go in for a surgery, I'd be under anesthesia for eight hours. But my husband was the one sitting in the waiting room wringing his hands for those eight hours. He didn't get that opportunity to be, you know, oblivious to what was going on. He was there every single minute, worrying every single minute. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, you really, I I love... uh, the reality that you bring to this. And, and I'd, I'd love to have you back because I'd really love to even just talk about the experience of going through this at such a, a young age because there are so many things that come out of that. But with what we've touched on today in terms of the post-traumatic stress and the anxiety and the depression, um, I know that this is something that you do professionally and it's certainly a, a, 
a personal passion of yours, but can you just, we've talked a lot about it, but is there anything you uh, want to talk about or any recommendations that you could make if somebody is struggling that we haven't already covered in our conversation? Definitely. I'd really like to touch on just the type of psychotherapy that I found has been proven to work for post-traumatic stress disorder, but something, it was the type of psychotherapy that I went through that really changed everything for me. Um, and I myself am not in that certified. It takes a special um, certification and an amount of hours and supervision for this, um, but it's, it's called EMDR. EMDR, it's called, it's a, stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's a bit of a mouthful. And basically what this is, is you're going to sit there and, and make sure that your therapist or your practitioner, you know, is certified and knows what they're doing. Um, now, basically, you're going to be asked to recall specific images. I was asked to recall uh, a specific image that really kind of triggered me the most. And for me, that was personally the very moment and what I saw the moment I heard on the words, I'm sorry, but you have cancer. And I, and I vividly remember that moment. And when I used to reminisce, it would immediately make me cry. I mean, it would immediately trigger a panic attack. It was something that really affected me. So you're going to think about that. And while that's happening, um, while you're recalling that image, uh, there's, something's going to be generating one type of bilateral sensory input. So this can look different for different practitioners. Um, it can be, a, I had on headphones, there was a beep that would go from every other ear. Um, I also had paddles in my hand and they would take turns vibrating on and off. So basically what it's going to do, um, and of course, again, I'm not certified in this, um, but what it's going to do is it's going to trigger different sides of your brain while you're doing this and it's going to reprocess those memories now within three sessions of doing this I could think about this image and I would not cry um and so it, it's a different way to go about other than talk therapy and it's something that's proven for PTSD um and it's something that if if you're serious um, and you're really struggling with the, the signs and the symptoms of, of PTSD, EMDR can be a game changer. And so I would really urge women to kind of to seek out that therapy. There are others that are available to you, but that's the one that I really, really believe in and I found really worked for me. Um, and something that, you know, I, I think it's, it's coming about and it's getting more, um, it's getting more, I guess coverage and it's being talked about a little more um, in the in the medical area of PTSD. This is um, this is something it's it's really interesting and I'm I hope that I can explain this clearly. But um, sometimes I get really frustrated when uh, women are just told, "Well, well, go see a therapist or go on medication." Those are the two biggest things, you know, therapy and medication. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's not that those things are wrong. In all cases, in many cases, I don't think they're helpful. But um, but the kind of the problem that I see with that is a, it's assuming that if you're having a hard time, that there's something wrong with you psychologically. So you know that's what therapy is. You know, is there's something wrong with you? And there is nothing wrong with you if you're having feelings and a reaction to the fact that you've been diagnosed with breast cancer and you're going through treatment. It's not a psychopathology. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a reaction to life events. So one thing that I really like to do is normalize that. You know, for one thing, if you're not upset when you've been diagnosed with cancer, I think that would probably be, 
unheard of, you know, or very rare, you know, so it's, it's not a psychopathology. And I love the fact that you're talking about EMDR. I've gone through it myself. As I said, I've, I have personally uh, gone through post-traumatic stress. And the thing that EMDR does is it's not processing the thing. Sometimes processing is talking about it is not going to change anything. You know, it's not going to change your emotional reaction. And EMDR is very much just cutting to you know, breaking, it's, it's, um, I thought you were going to say cognitive behavioral therapy, because, you know, it's also an, another modality that kind of breaks that, that uh, habitual thought process that we can get into, you know, that that can kind of keep us in the same place. And that's what I like about EMDR. And I think EMDR um, is, and I want to make sure that uh, for people who don't know what that is, it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. But it's not talk therapy. It's actually an intervention. And I, what I like about it is that it's not assuming that there's anything wrong with you if you're having difficulty. It's just dealing with the fact that you're having difficulty and helping you get to a better place. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, and like you said, normalization, there is nothing wrong with being on medication, if you are comfortable with being on medication, it's something that you've talked about with your doctor. Um, I will say, though, you know, I'm, I personally am glad that I decided to seek EMDR therapy prior to seeking a psychiatrist because I was able to, um, now I do have a, like a prescription for emergencies, which I happen to take, I have to get rescanned every six months and probably the week before and the week after while I'm waiting for results. Um, I, I need some extra help then. Um, but as far as just, you know, everyday medication, I was able to, um, you know, avoid that with, with starting with, um, this kind of therapy. Um, and if it had not worked for me or if I needed backup, I would not have had a problem taking medication. But I think that a lot of people want to immediately jump. If you're going to go to your PCP or your primary care physician and say, I'm feeling this way this many days out of the week and I'm not getting out of bed and I'm not, you know, if you don't have a doctor um, that works holistically and that is going to um, really keep in mind everything you've been through, they may be quick to write you a prescription um, for psychotropic medication. When in reality, if it's something that you can work through because you've gone through a traumatic event, you can avoid having to be on, you know, medications. Um, because I know some women, especially those that have had hormone cancers, you know, minus triple negative, they're on long term medications, hormone medications. And I know that those can sometimes interact with psychotropic medications. And so, you know, it's not that I wish doctors wouldn't prescribe them. I just wish that it wasn't their first go to. Right. Right. And, and that's a really good point. I mean, there's so many drug interactions. And, um, you know, I'll just say, you know, from my perspective that, that the most common antidepressants that are prescribed, originally were meant to address short term situations of depression. They were never meant for someone to be on them for years, and yet that's what happens. I've I've seen clients who have been on a antidepressant for like ten years, and then you know I ask them, "Well, is it helping?" And probably to a person, it's like, "No." There comes a point where they don't help. They can help in the short term, but as a long term plan, they're they're not always helpful. And then the problem is, is they can be very um, tricky to get off of. You never want to go cold turkey if you've been on one of these medications for a long time. So you can start having symptoms when you try to come off of it. But like you said, sometimes, you know, the 
in my experience, sometimes the most effective use of those medications is for short-term interventions, but then backing it up with something that's going to help you kind of address the underlying um, difficulty that you're having without relying on the medication to do that. Exactly. And I think that that just kind of piggybacking off of that, um, like you said, having it as a backup, I think is a wonderful is a wonderful idea. And also using it in conjunction with some coping mechanisms, you know, just because you're going to go to EMDR or whatever kind of therapy you're attending, doesn't mean that there aren't times. Um, for some reason, after I got cancer, all of a sudden, I would start getting very panicky before I would get on flights, and I had never had an issue with traveling. And so, you know, I would in the airport before getting on the plane, would have to utilize those coping skills and do my deep breathing and my self talk. And you know, that is in conjunction with medication and me going to regular therapy. And so, you know, there's no one size fits all, but there's also no, you know, this one thing is gonna be the magic pill or you know, the magic cure-all for everything. Sometimes, you know, having a backup or doing multiple things is what's really going to get you to where you need to be. That's so really the approach I take in the groups that I run. I run online and in-person groups, and it's really to give a number of tools that you can use in these different situations. And just in terms of self-care, it's not even that you have to be having a problem, but just really learning to navigate this, um, which, which, you know, as I said, a lot of people don't do that until they're in a situation where they have to. But having some of these tools can keep you from having to use medication only as the response. You know, I, I studied a, a modality, it's called mind-body skills, and it, it's using, using breathing and meditation and visualization. And that's what I like to teach my clients because we can all use that. You don't have to be in the midst of a diagnosis or recovery to use it, but most people um, haven't heard of it or don't know how to do that. And I really like you know, I really like the idea of people having options so that they can utilize that. And like you, I had never had a panic attack until I was, um, it was after my first uh, treatment and I was going through PTSD and I was out at a coffee shop and I had a panic attack. I had no idea what it was. I started hyperventilating. The room got really dizzy. I had no idea. It was like, I got home, I was scared. And then when I could sit down and think about it, it's like, oh my God, that's that's a panic attack, you know, but I had never mm-hmm. had one. It, it was just like everything was different, you know, and, and I didn't at that time have the knowledge or the ability to know what to do at that point in time. So just, yes, yeah. just in closing, I just wanted to, um, you've talked about a couple of things, but I really want to um, emphasize what, <clears throat> that post-traumatic stress is a very normal reaction to a life-threatening event, which breast cancer and cancer is a life-threatening event. I'm just wondering if you could take a few minutes and really talk about what some of the key symptoms are so that that someone uh, may not be aware of the fact that they're having post-traumatic stress reactions. What are some of the more common things that you see? So the, the more common things, um, we're going to have trouble sleeping, whether this is insomnia, um, breaks in sleeping as far as you being woken up from nightmares, from intrusive um, thoughts. Um, a lot of anxiety, like I mentioned before, one of the things that is actually pretty common, but people just don't put two and two together is being spooked all the time, having your anxiety so high, you may not realize that you're on edge constantly. But when someone comes, when someone honks your horn, it makes you jump. Um, the dog starts barking, somebody walks into the room, and it makes you jump. Um, 
anything like that uh, that's going, that's unusual, that you didn't feel that way before. Um, there's going to be, you know, signs of depression, um, signs of other generalized anxiety disorder um, that are going to pop up. A lot of this can also be accompanied with um, survivor's guilt. That's another thing that ties um, into PTSD and just having cancer in general. Um, and that is with you're having um, questions of why me? Why did I survive? Um, why did it not uh, kill me? But it, but it, it hurt this other person and, and they're not going to make it. But I'm still here. I don't feel that I'm worthy of being alive or I don't feel like I've earned it. Um, kind of in your head trying to make sense of everything and really being left with a lot of guilt. Um, the survivor's guilt can play a role into that. And really all of these things, um, PTSD is one of these things that it can continue to just get worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, at least for me, my symptoms really just, they would rev up on certain things that triggered me, such as having scans or cancer being brought up or seeing a commercial or smelling my oncologist's office. Um, I, I mean, I can just describe it as the smell of chemo and I can right. picture it and smell it in a heartbeat. Um, anything like that, that's going to trigger, um, a panic attack, high blood pressure. Um, it got to the point where every time I entered my doctor's office, my blood pressure would skyrocket. And so they sent me to a cardiologist and what it was, was that was situational anxiety. Right. That PTSD was manifesting itself in things that I wasn't even aware of that were triggering me. So walking into my doctor's office, I think I'm fine. My body is not fine. My right. lizard brain is firing off and it's fight or flight, but I'm still sitting there and my body is trying to tell my brain, what are you doing? Get out of here. You are not safe here. You know, and even though your brain and your mind, when you have PTSD are sometimes not connected, that's what we're trying to work is, is to reconnect those two things. And to have your brain be able to tell your body, no, we are okay. Let's breathe. Let's calm down. I know that this happened one time, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen again. Um, because really, your body at its core is just trying to survive. It is trying to avoid going through what it has once gone through. And your brain may be a little smarter than that. But when they're not connected and you've gone through that traumatic event, um, you have two pieces of your body that are really trying to fight each other. And so really PTSD treatment is really just trying to get your whole body on the same page. And I will add to that, you know, just from my own experience, my uh, way of it coming out was on the anxiety spectrum where I just became hypervigilant, especially at night. I lived alone and every noise I heard outside of my apartment, I was just like, oh my God, somebody's trying to break in. You know, and it was mm -hmm. this hypervigilance that was not reasonable to the situation. It was actually, you know, watching a TV show where people were talking about PTSD and they're like, are you hypervigilant and waking up 25 times a night looking out the window thinking people are breaking in? And I'm like, how do they know my life? You know, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's, but, but, you know, these, these things, I just want to really emphasize they're normal. They are normal reactions. And the other thing that can happen, and I think I've heard women talk about this, particularly when it comes to scanning and testing, is that dissociation, where you feel like you're floating and your mind is not really connected to your body. That's usually a, a very entrenched coping pattern that people can get into when they're experiencing this, where it's like, I don't remember what happened, you know, or, or mm -hmm. 
just don't feel connected. And as we've talked about, all of those things are normal. It does not mean there's anything wrong with you, but it does mean that you need to find really skilled and knowledgeable people to help you get to a different place. And not every therapist, not every doctor, not every friend or family member is going to understand what it is or how to help you. But if you can find someone who, who is knowledgeable in these areas, then they can help you understand it in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're going crazy. Exactly, exactly. And like you said, um, you know, have a friend or, or somebody that's not going to make you feel, feel bad about this. Just, just know that when you go through this process, you will have different friends, not all different friends, but there will be friends who just disappear and then they'll pop right back up after you're done with treatment it's the weirdest thing. And you'll also meet people that you're going to be closer with, but just know that, you know, those people who are really there through the long haul, um, if they really support you, you know, they're going to walk beside you through this aftermath because it's, it's easy to, to show up for chemo and to bring someone meals. But if they're going to sit there and listen to you express that you're sad or that you're needing help or that you're going through this treatment, you know, the people that are going to sit, there in the silence and through the hard stuff with you after the cancer treatment is gone, you know, that's when I think it's, those are the people that are really going to stick around. And those are the people that you need to hold on to, because I think there's a little bit of uh, some people, you know, as terrible as it sounds, um, it's almost sexy to have that friend with cancer. Oh, I'm going to bring them this and I'm going to bring them this and I'm going to take care of them and they want to care for you. But when it's over, you know, you need the friends that are going to sit there when it really gets rough and it's not as visible on the outside. They can't bring you a meal because you're having panic attacks. I mean, they just need to sit through the hard stuff with you. I call it the casserole experience. Those friends who show up with a casserole <laughs> and feel like they've done something oh, goodness. and then they oh, disappear. Goodness. And, yeah. And it's, it's so funny. It's, it, they all, you know, and a lot of people, some people disappear and I understand the people that disappear think, well, I didn't have anything to say and I don't know what to say. And, you know, when I'm talking to, to people who have friends who have cancer, family members who have cancer, I just think of my best friend on the phone. She lives out of state. She told me one time, I don't know what to say to make you feel better, but just know that I'm so sorry you're hurting. And, you know, that was in, in itself. That's all you need. Absolutely enough. That's, that's all you need. One of my favorite quotes is, it's be messy and complicated and afraid and show up anyway. You know, and it's, it's about showing up. It's not about what you look like or what you have to say or what you don't have to say. It's about showing up. One of my friends that I lost, I think the first cancer experience, you know, he just couldn't deal, you know, and he just couldn't show up you know, as, as a real person, he just couldn't show up at all. And I remember months later in the one conversation I had, it was like, I didn't need you to help me fight the cancer. I just needed you to show up with a funny movie on a Saturday night. And we could just, mm-hmm. you know, just do anything besides talk about cancer. You know, sometimes it's, it's like, you don't, you don't have to be there for the chemo treatment and you don't have to be there necessarily for the hard times, but, you know, show up with a, with a goofy movie. My favorite is Young Frankenstein. That can get me out of <laughs> depressed mood instantly. It's like, just show up with young Frankenstein. That's what we used to do before I was a cancer patient. You know, but, but, you know, I get it that people are uncomfortable. There are those people who are uncomfortable, like your friend, who really want to be there and don't know what to do. And then there are some people who just aren't going to be there. And I think that going through this, you get just get really clear. But once again, it's not your fault if someone else is not able to deal with your illness. 
it's just it's just them you know and there's and, exactly you know no reason to be guilty about that so um we've talked this has been such a great conversation i love talking to you but um uh can you give people um information on how to find your blog or how to connect with you um if they um have any questions or just want to connect with you? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I am, I'm always open to conversation and questions. And so um, the blog is www.netflixandchemo.com. Netflix like the streaming service and chemo, C-H-E-M-O.com. Um, my Instagram name is uh, Megan Molnar. Megan is spelled a little funky. It's M-A-E-G-A-N. Molnar, M-O-L-N-A-R. And then my email is MeganMolnar at gmail.com. Great. And um, I will have this in show notes, which people can um, connect with on my website. And I'll have that information at the end. But I just really want to thank you so much. This has just been really great. I, um, there's just so much more we can talk about. So I very well might invite you back. But I really appreciate you taking time to join us today. Oh, well, thank you so much. I know we bounced around quite a bit, but I love talking with you um, and I'd love to come back. That would be great. Um, so uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And you can certainly access show notes at my website, which is www.mindbodynutritionrn.com. And really, if you're struggling with any of this or if you have questions about integrative health or how to really take control of your own recovery process, I really invite you to reach out to me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. Reach out to Megan. And if you're in a place where you're really struggling with the things that we talked about, just reach out. You know, oftentimes um, nurse navigators, which are um, resources in many practices, will have resources for you. But if you really feel like you're struggling, just just reach out to a support group, to someone who understands, but just don't feel like you have to be alone and that you're going crazy and there's no one out there for you because there's a lot of us who really do understand what this process is like and really want to be there as a resource. So thank you for joining us. And until next week, take care. Thank you for that information, Megan. And I will certainly include that in the show notes. For our listeners, you can access show notes and a recording of today's podcast through my website, which is www.boobsaren'tworthdyingfor.com. That will take you to my website. You can look under the podcast section and find recordings of today's show as well as previous episodes. You can also find information about my coaching programs and schedule a free consultation to talk about integrative health and how I might support you in your recovery and developing an integrative recovery plan. You can also arrange for that by contacting me through email at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us today. And until next week, take care. I really do invite you to reach out with any questions, comments, or if you would like to schedule a time to talk. Thanks so much. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.